the leader of the European Space Agency, this week on Planetary Radio. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society, with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. And that was U.S. President John Fitzgerald Kennedy on a blazingly hot Houston, Texas afternoon at Rice University. The date was September 12, 1962. Exactly 60 years later, an international coalition is attempting to send more humans to the moon. In this special episode, we'll talk with ESA Director General Joseph Ashbacher, who came to the Kennedy Space Center hoping to see the launch of Artemis One, the first big step into space that will realize this new goal. First, though, a bit more history. Hardly anyone alive has listened to the entirety of Kennedy's speech that day. It's a remarkable statement, delivered by a young president who seemed to barely notice the heat, even as dignitaries behind him mopped their brows. We now know that Kennedy had expressed serious doubts about setting the United States on course for the moon, but you'd never know it from his remarks. NASA was back at Rice on the 60th anniversary of the speech, with Administrator Bill Nelson leading the celebration. And what of Artemis I? Repair of the liquid hydrogen leak continues. As I speak, the next launch opportunity has moved from September 23rd to the 27th, with another window opening on October 2nd. You'll find other lunar news in the September 9 edition of the Downlink, the Planetary Society's free weekly newsletter, including word that Danuri, South Korea's lunar orbiter, is healthy and on its way to the moon after using a solar slingshot to help it get there. Arrival is expected on December 16. You'll always find awe-inspiring images at planetary.org downlink, which this time include another stunner from the JWST and a shot of the sun's surface taken by the now operational Inaway Solar Telescope in Hawaii, the most powerful instrument of its kind by far. We also learned that a study of astronaut blood samples found higher rates of mutation in stem cells, demonstrating, again, that keeping humans healthy in space is full of challenges. You'll also see a shot I'm pretty proud of. It's the big KSC countdown clock that I photographed against a gorgeous Florida sunrise. August 28th was the day before I caught that sunrise. You may have heard some of the conversations my colleagues and I had with special NASA guests on last week's show. I promised we'd be back with more. We only have time here for one interview, but you can hear from leaders of the German and Italian space agencies in this week's podcast and at planetary.org radio. Also from David Parker, ESA's Director of Human and Robotic Exploration. Scientists turned ESA Director General Joseph Ashbacher sat down with me 
in the noisy dining room at the Kennedy Space Center, where interviews were underway all around us. Joseph, thank you very much. We are very honored to be able to speak with you as the, the leader of ESA. No, thank you. The honor and the pleasure is all mine. I really am so excited to be here and uh, looking forward to what's happening tomorrow. A, a lot of it, I think, needs to focus on the international collaboration that this represents, the Artemis Accords, but separately, the very close collaboration that ESA enjoys with NASA and has for so many years. Yeah. No, it's uh, true. We have uh, an incredibly good and strong uh, cooperation with NASA for many decades, and uh, this really spans uh, many domains. Uh, human exploration, of course, is one of them, and uh, through Artemis, uh, today, tomorrow, and the next couple of weeks, we will focus on, on that part. Uh, but also we have uh, excellent corporations on space science, but also Earth observation. Uh, we have uh, a very good uh, cooperation in Earth observation, for example, the contributions uh, which uh, the U.S. is also making to uh, uh, the Copernicus program, uh, Sentinel-6, for example. I happen to be the director of Earth observation at that time in ESA before the current job. And uh, because of the strong U.S. contribution to that particular mission, it's the first time that we have named a satellite after uh, an American uh, space uh, expert, uh, Michael Freilich, uh, who used to be the director of Earth Science in, uh, in NASA, because he was not only a, a fantastic uh, space expert, he was a personal friend of mine. When, of course, we heard about his, uh, his uh, personal illness, um, really very unfortunately he passed away uh, just recently, I decided to name one of our flagship satellites uh, after him. And we have named or renamed our Sentinel-6 satellite, Sentinel-6 Michael Freilich, in his honor, uh, and, but also to underline the strong cooperation which we have with NASA on many domains, in Earth observation in this particular case, but also in many other domains. So yes, the partnership is, uh, is excellent, is very strong, and uh, I would like to say through Artemis it is uh, lifted one more level up, uh, which was also said by Administrator Nelson when he recently came to speak to my member states uh, in June this year in the Netherlands, uh, where I invited him to speak to uh, the ESA Council, uh, which brings together all the 22 member states of the European Space Agency. And he gave an incredibly strong speech, very powerful, but also very eloquent to underline uh, the good cooperation, the partnership we have. And he himself said, we are lifting now this partnership to the next level uh, through the activities which we do. And I'm very humbled about these uh, words of uh, the NASA administrator. Uh, I'm also very uh, humbled by the trust NASA puts into ESA in the participation of uh, uh, us uh, in the Artemis mission in a very crucial element, uh, the European Service Module. Uh, but also, I'm also proud. I'm also proud to be part of it and have the ESA logo on the SLS rocket. I think that's beautiful and uh, I have to say personally, it really is nice to see that. I think that service module is uh, certainly the, the most obvious representation within this mission and within the Artemis program of Europe's participation, of ESA's participation. The development of that service module, no small task. Uh, no small task, believe me, and like uh, many things in space, uh, uh, it's a rather complex mission. Uh, you know that we are, we are struggling, have been struggling for many years uh, with a particular valve uh, which uh, has uh, created some, some hiccups and also some uh, headaches on, on our side. Uh, but it's uh, really the complexity. There are uh, 20,000 uh, individual pieces in the European Service Module 
coming from 10 different countries uh, and their, from their industries. And you can imagine what it means to bring all this together uh, and make, make sure it works uh, flawlessly uh, and it all fits uh, together as one, one piece that, uh, that is providing all the functions that are required. So yes, it was uh, quite a development work which we undertook. Uh, but I think we, it is fair to say that uh, we are on a very good path. Uh, uh, Bill Nelson and his uh, key people have been um, in the facilities in Bremen uh, just this summer and have been looking at the uh, Airbus uh, facilities producing the European service module. And uh, he really has been satisfied with uh, the, the, the results, uh, the way the work is done and also the progress uh, which we are making. In fact, to the point that he was asking us whether we would be capable of delivering one European service, mod service module per year uh, for future Artemis missions. And that's something on which we are working right now uh, to have a cadence, uh, almost serial production of these ESMs uh, for all the Artemis missions to come. So yes, it has been a major challenge, uh, a major effort. Very glad uh, that uh, we went through all this uh, very positively. And now we are at the stage where we can say we are very confident to have this uh, powering the Orion uh, a spacecraft a capsule and bringing it back, uh, back to Earth uh, safely. And that's uh, the job of, of the Europeans, so I'm very happy to be part of that. Turning from the collaboration between NASA and ESA, maybe focusing more internally on ESA. Are, are you familiar with the, the phrase herding cats? 22 different nations making up ESA. That has to present some substantial challenges, uh, keeping everybody working toward a particular goal and even identifying those goals. Oh, that is my daily job and uh, as you say this is uh, hurting the cat so actually I, I, I quote again uh, Bill Nelson uh, who was saying that in fact uh, during his visit when he was in, in Europe he was saying look Joseph for me you are Merlin you are a magician uh, what you need to do is every single day make sure that these 22 member states plus a few other partners are going in one direction and not uh, running away in all different directions uh, and that is no no small task uh, quoting uh, his words there but uh, let me say yes this is a challenge uh, but I'm really having fun in doing it it's a huge challenge it's not always easy to get uh, Germany and France and Italy and the UK and Switzerland and Norway and Austria and Poland and many other countries uh, in one in one direction but that's uh, that's my job and I see it really as a challenge to to do that so how do we do that um, of course um, what we always do and this is the um, I would say the um, the success of ESA we are defining the space programs through different ways uh, sometimes driven by inputs from scientists where scientists tell us space scientists we we need to explore uh, whether there's life out there on one of the Jupiter or Saturn moons and uh, then we scratch our head and we think uh, what can be done what needs to be done in order to see whether there can be life out there or not uh, uh, and we of course eventually define a mission and you can imagine if you define something of that scale. This is huge. It's huge in terms of time scale, but also funding that is required. So uh, my job will be to, apart from developing the first uh, program proposal, the proposal for a project, to then see whether this flies with the member states and uh, whether they are uh, having uh, the willingness and the appetite to invest in it and make it happen. And that's exactly, uh, I would say, my, my, my daily job, to uh, define these programs test uh, with the member states uh, whether this uh, is uh, in their interest and there are many facets that uh, 
uh, give the answer to that. Uh, one is industrial, whether uh, the country has an industrial interest in order to engage, but it's also societal, it's political, it's strategic. Uh, uh, there are many dimensions uh, that, uh, that are involved in this uh, in this decision in one country and of course you have to then put all 22 countries together and then what we do in ESA and the European Space Agency is we define these programs, we do it every three years uh, at so-called ESA ministerial conferences, uh, we put them on the table and then we invite member states to sign up to them and to fund them. And uh, the challenging thing is that uh, we are not funded by the member states just because they are a member. We have only 20% of our budget that is contributed to the European Space Agency's budget because of membership, according to the size of the country. But the 80% of money we are getting through what we call optional programs. That means we define these programs and then we allow countries to either participate or not, participate large or small in a certain project. And it's really up to them uh, to define their participation, which means that we may have a project where we have 10 countries participating or 22 countries participating, so this is completely variable and they can really choose out on their own. Of course, this adds pressure on my side because I need to have attractive programs, uh, otherwise they wouldn't uh, sign up to it and uh, we will not be able to, to get them off the ground. So yes, it's uh, a lot of work we need to do to make sure that those programs we put on the table at the end get uh, full funding uh, in order to fully develop a satellite and fully fly to space, not only 80% or 50% of it, we need the, the whole money in order to achieve that. So yes, uh, it's complicated, I uh, think it's true, but uh, it's also fun doing the job. When you were focused mostly on doing science of your own, did you envision that one day you would need to basically be a salesman? You are well informed that I'm a scientist, yes. Uh, uh, actually, I did enjoy a lot my science. I, as you know, I come uh, from a geoscience domain. I was studying meteorology and geophysics. And uh, I did enjoy analyzing satellite data and uh, deriving information uh, from radar images, uh, from optical images, for agriculture, for forestry, for disaster management, for security, uh, for climate change. Uh, many parameters uh, we have been deriving from the satellite data. And yes, I, yeah, I enjoyed it. But of course, if you grow in your responsibility. You see also that you can also influence uh, uh, activities by taking on responsibilities in a management position. Uh, and that's what I'm having now. I'm having now a management position. And of course, my science is out the window. I mean, it's, uh, I'm not doing science anymore uh, actively, but I need my science background to make uh, good judgment, good decisions, uh, to assess quickly whether this is a good idea or a bad idea. Uh, and yes, so this uh, experience and uh, background I think is essential uh, also in leadership, uh, management leadership positions uh, to have good judgment and uh, therefore decide you know, whether a project makes sense or doesn't make sense. Of course, you, there are many opinions that flow into it, but your own gut feeling is quite often a, a very important aspect of this as well. The Planetary Society, we do our best to uh, celebrate the accomplishments of space agencies around the world. NASA obviously often is very prominent uh, at the top of that list. But ESA has so much to be proud of. And I wonder if you'd like to, to talk about, you know, some of those successes. I mean, an immediate one that comes to mind for me is already back a few years, Rosetta. Yeah, we, we have um, actually a lot to talk about. And sometimes my own people tell me, look, Joseph, it is not fair that when you talk space, even in Europe, everyone talks NASA and nobody talks ESA. I feel also bad myself because that's my job and, uh, uh, and I know that my people are doing an incredibly 
good work on uh, in engineering, in science, and uh, every single day. Yes, uh, some of the achievements you mentioned, Rosetta. Rosetta was amazing. I mean, landing on a comet uh, with a lander, uh, the first time ever. I mean, this is um, yeah has not happened before and has really created also major headlines, uh, but also other achievements which uh, which we have. Gaia, for example, Gaia is another space science mission today. Uh, the majority of all scientific publications in space science are based on Gaia data, uh, which is incredible. We have just released another uh, another uh, data set, uh, a release of the data set. Uh, again, uh, we have many Nobel Peace Prize winners uh, doing their work based on our data. Of course, many times we do work with international partners, so with NASA, with uh, JAXA, with uh, other international partners, and that also makes us... Uh, I think strong that we have this good network with uh, other international space agencies, uh, but also in Earth observation, Copernicus is uh, uh, a program which uh, is, uh, if I may say, the gold standard today in Earth observation. It's providing an operational service, operational uh, data to uh, uh, people around the world for free, because this was one of the points I was really insisting, that these data are free of charge for everyone at any place in the world. And we provide data that you need for agriculture, forestry, ship routing, uh, uh, weather forecasting, uh, for disaster management from this fleet of uh, Copernicus Sentinel satellites. Uh, so yes, sir, Galileo is another example where we do something very similar to GPS, a navigation system, which is top standard, uh, same quality as, uh, uh, as the GPS system and uh, routinely used by actually in an iPhone or any other mobile phone you would have to receive us for both of them and they are both uh, both being there. So yes, there are many examples of uh, achievements, uh, discoveries, uh, which sometimes you don't hear about, uh, but I, I, I'm told by my people I should make a bigger effort to communicate more and I hope uh, the Planetary Society helps me doing that. We'll keep doing our best. One last quick one. Are you hopeful that we will still someday see that ExoMars rover? the Rosalind Franklin rover, uh, rolling across Mars. As Director General of the European Space Agency, I have to be hopeful and I will be hopeful, but I can also tell you that it is a difficult uh, decision and a difficult uh, undertaking. We need uh, fresh uh, investments to make. Uh, I'm actually preparing a proposal for my member states in November at the ESA Ministerial Conference and then we will make the decisions. But yes, the science uh, will still be unique uh, also in a couple of years from today drilling into the surface, two meters, analyzing this probe and uh, seeing whether there might have been life down there, uh, two meters uh, below the surface of Mars, is still top science. Nobody else will have done it by then. Uh, so yes, uh, from a science point of view, uh, this is still a very, uh, a very important mission. We wish you the greatest of success with that mission. All of us want to see that drill go deep below the surface and see what it finds down there, uh, but also just across all of the work that, uh, that ESA does. And uh, thank you for the few minutes today. Oh, thank you very much. It was a real pleasure, and I hope I have more opportunities. It's, uh, it's very important for me as well. Thank you. European Space Agency Director General Joseph Ashbacher. I'll be back with Bruce Betts and the Space Trivia Contest. This is Planetary Radio. Hello, I'm George Takei, and as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism, boldly going where no one had gone before. I want you to know about a very special organization called the Planetary Society. They are working to make the future that Star Trek represents a reality.
boldly go to build our future. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. We are here with the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. You know him. It's Bruce Betts. Welcome back. Hi, Matt. Why are we whispering? Because if you want people to listen, whisper. (laughs) I thought it was because your dogs are asleep. (laughs) They are, but there doesn't seem to be any correlation with that. Hey, you want to hear about the night sky? I do, but first I want to say something about Venusian atmospheric penguins, because I was reminded by a couple of listeners that we never posted any of the pictures that we got from quite a few of you. Thank you so much, everyone. If you are are listening elsewhere, go to this week's page at planetary.org slash radio to see some uh, some great examples of some of the artwork that we got. Hilarious Jupiter is rising just after sunset in the east. And then it'll be up in the east looking super bright. And significantly above it is yellowish Saturn. And Mars coming up uh, in the late evening now. And uh, we'll follow the others across the sky and looking reddish. Mars brightening significantly over the next couple months as it gets closer to Earth. And, or Earth gets closer to Mars, depending on how you look at it. And Jupiter will be at opposition opposite side of the Earth from the Sun on September 26th. So then it'll really be rising at sunset and setting at sunrise. Uh, On to this week in space history, uh, five years since the Cassini end of mission intentionally crashed into Saturn after an unbelievably magnificent mission. In 1965, Lost in Space premieres, which I mention every year for Matt's benefit. It was a special day for me at least until Star Trek premiered a year later and then Lost in Space <laughs> kind of faded from uh, my pantheon of uh, television sci-fi greats. Uh, on to random space fact. <laughs> RSF, Will Robinson. Uh, I, I know you've swum in the mat, an Olympic-sized pool. Many times. The odd dimensions, at least in the U.S., of uh, typically 25 yards by 50 meters to accommodate swimming of both kinds, short course and long course. Well, the reason that's relevant, there's a lot of there's a lot of liquid in an Olympic-sized pool, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. You know what would overflow an Olympic-sized pool is if you took all of the liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen from the SLS rocket and put them together, which isn't always advisable. Uh, that would <laughs> that would overflow an Olympic sized swimming pool. Wow, that's a lot of gas uh, and 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 oxygen. Uh, and I suppose if there were such a pool, you'd want to have a really good wetsuit to swim in it. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure you you at least are going dry suit and yeah. uh, possibly something <laughs> more specialized. Let's move on, shall we, to the trivia contest where I once again ask you a question that seems so straightforward and wasn't. I thought it was. How many JPL directors have there been since the Voyagers launched include acting directors? How'd we do? I know how we did, Matt. 
Well, first of all, we got a very big response. Now, it's oh, not shaping up to be as big as next week's response oh, with nice. your uh, animals uh, on Artemis. But there's a guy who's often left out. And, and, and it looked like maybe because he had a somewhat different status. So basically, we'll take seven or eight as the correct answer, because there was the General Charles Terhune, the JPL acting director in 82, who's listed on the JPL site, but for example, not in the list on Wikipedia. And there is Larry James. Uh, yeah. Both of these uh, generals are in his case, Lieutenant General retired from the Air Force. He was the interim director. Mm during this latest period between directors. So eight, if you count acting and interim directors, seven, if you count acting directors, six, if you don't count five, four, three, two, one. Um, <laughs> so seven or eight, how do we do who won? <laughs> well, it, it happens that random.org selected somebody who came up with the number seven. And that person, get this, Rick Rubio in Nebraska, Long-time listener, uh, he says he'll be sad when I'm no longer hosting, but he's going to keep listening. I recommend that very highly, Rick. There'll be plenty of reason to continue. Rick won one time previously, 10 years and one month ago. Oh, That's my gosh. Long time between wins. Congratulations, Rick. You got yourself a nice prize package. It's a copy of... That beautiful new book, Voyager, Photographs from Humanity's Greatest Journey. I'm not going to argue with that statement by uh, Jens Besmer and uh, Joel Meter, published by Tenuis. Ten, ten, Tenuis? Anyway, it's T-E capital N-E-U-E-S, because I don't remember how to do it. But we're also throwing in a Planetary Society Voyager Neptune Encounter medallion. Good on you, Rick. Congratulations. Yes, and uh, let's not wait another decade for this. Guess we're ready for another one. Approximately, and I underline the word approximately, how long from launch will it take Korea's Denuri mission to reach the moon? How long will it take Denuri to reach the moon from when it launched in August of this year? Uh, go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Anybody who was paying attention during the opening of this week's show should have a fairly easy time with this one. And you have until the 21st. That would be September 21st at 8 a.m. Pacific time. It's a Wednesday, by the way. Yeah, you didn't know that. I, it's, it was a news item in the downlink, so I went ahead and uh, mentioned that. But that's okay. We can stick with it's it. It's okay. We should give benefit to those who... Uh... Who listen to the shows? Yeah. Plus, you you probably got it wrong. <laughs> Thanks no, so I, much. I'm, I'm kidding. I haven't heard it. I have faith in you and the downlink. Yeah. Well, you can have faith in the downlink at least. <laughs> That's because I review that. I don't review you. <laughs> Thank goodness. Thank goodness. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about what dog or sheep you would fly on a spacecraft if you had the option. Uh, stuff buddy, in this case. Go to planetary.org slash nothing because all I'm going to say is thank you and good night. I have a little bit more to say. You know, it occurred to me that that range of JPL directors from Bruce Murray to Lori Leshen, those bookends, you're well connected to both of those, aren't you? 
Yeah, Bruce Murray was my PhD thesis advisor, and Lori Leshen and I were in the uh, same class entering the at Caltech doing planetary type stuff. Do you need more evidence of why we're glad he's the chief scientist for the Planetary Society and that he joins us every week here on What's Up? I've had to turn down JPL director so many times. Oops, I forgot to mention this week's prize, and it's a great one. Our friends at Chop Shop have a newly designed JWST t-shirt. You can check it out at chopshopstore.com, where you'll also find the Planetary Society merch store. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members around the world. Learn more at planetary.org slash join. Mark Hilverda and Ray Poletta are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. <laughs>